Hello, and welcome to Neuratives, the podcast where each episode we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction and talk about the real-world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho, and with me, as always, is Nick Halper. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Nick. We're actually about to talk about what we thought about RoboCop, but sneak peek behind the scenes here, we kind of sometimes do more than one thing in the same session, and at the moment... We're doing our pre-watch sequence of Total Recall, which was directed by the same director as RoboCop. Right. And I know nothing about this movie. Steven has talked about it many times. It's on our website. (laughs) You put that picture there. (laughs) Uh, Well, now... Now I don't even know what to say. Uh, I've never seen this movie. I don't know anything about it. I don't know who's in it. I don't know the subject matter. Total Recall is based on a Philip K. Dick short story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Okay. I'm, I'm listening, Stephen. <laughs> yes. I have probably never seen Total Recall from start to finish in its entirety, But it was on television a lot on like weekend afternoons when I was a kid. And so because of that, I have probably seen Total Recall half a dozen times in pieces and backwards or like it like, yeah, okay. And I adore this movie. It might be my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I don't think it's the best movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger has ever been in but it's like peak Arnold. You think of Arnold Schwarzenegger as a brand. This is it. This is peak Arnold, yes. Oh, dude, I'm so sold. Yeah, and then it was also directed by Paul Verhoeven, who now you have seen one of Paul Verhoeven's movies. Right, and so I I, I can see what style this movie might have. When was Total Recall shot? Um, 1990, three years after RoboCop. Okay. Maybe uh, CGI advanced just a little bit (laughs) after that. (laughs) Crossing my fingers, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, so Total Recall has to do with memory. So I'm assuming we're going to talk about memory afterwards. It's basically about, like, you know, placing memories into people, you know, classic sci-fi stuff. Yeah, which is actually great because I think we've talked a lot about... We've talked about some memory implant before, but it's been more about memory erasure Mm -hmm. Uh, so this would be good to approach it from that perspective i'm really looking forward to watching this from beginning to end for the first time and i I am truly excited to watch this again (laughs) uh i'm excited to see arnold in his prime not that he's not in his prime right now it's just you know (laughs) different different primes of his life oh yeah definitely well we're gonna sign off for now but we're super stoked and if it's not obvious already, we're doing the original 1990 Total Recall, not the one with Colin Farrell. Well, I don't know what sound effect I'm going to use in editing to signal the break, but here it is. <laughs> okay, we're back and we have watched Total Recall. And watched it, we did. That was an experience, Steven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what did you think about Total Recall? So, 
Total Recall is like a very popular movie in my mind. Like many people talk about it. It's well known. I've never seen it. It was, I think it was more like cerebral in some ways than I thought it was going to be. Like there are some like thinky kind of twisty aspects to the movie. The effects now that I had watched Robocop were exactly as I had anticipated. (laughs) Overall, I think I enjoyed it. I feel like it didn't really have the same capture of it didn't establish as strong of a, a world and kind of presence to me as RoboCop did. Okay. RoboCops felt like a lot more immersive to me. I don't know why I'm comparing and contrasting to RoboCop necessarily, but RoboCop felt a lot more immersive to me than Total Recall did. I think RoboCop is a natural comparison here. I mean, it's it's the same director, right? Sure. As well as um, perhaps similar themes of memory and sense of self, although uh, the way sort of Rogocop explores these themes are different. I agree with you about the fact that this movie does substantially less world building through like presentation of in-world media. There is some, but there is quite a bit less. Yeah, I guess some of the movie centers around forms. It's like services that are offered, right? So the whole movie centers around this like, memory service that is i guess the the center of the media and you get you get some stuff shown on the subway but like you said it's not enough i almost feel like this i was a little disappointed actually on the first time i rewatched this and i think that might be a little bit of paul verhoven burnout almost (laughs) i agree it didn't quite grab me the way that i sort of was expecting i mean people's memories are bad and my memory is was like super hyping up this movie and when we rewatched robocop for this podcast robocop felt like it sort of lived up to that internal mental hype i was giving it from my memory and the first rewatch of total recall kind of kind of didn't i i did enjoy it more on the sort of second rewatch where i jot notes down a little bit more religiously i think it might be due to expectations from robocop and the idea that this is actually despite being similar to robocop and having some sort of similar directorial signature elements it it is a very different movie from robocop and has a very different energy yeah i agree with that this movie feels like it's trying to present this like grand adventure i don't want to say space opera because that has a whole different connotation but this this kind of like grand adventure intergalactic kind of vibe but i feel like it it misses on that a little bit it doesn't know whether it wants to be like this weird spy movie or a psychological kind of like thriller thing or grand space adventure and i think it gets lost in it Yeah, I think the way I would put it is RoboCop is a lot more sort of is a tongue in cheek satire. Mm -hmm. And I think does a better job of being that than perhaps Total Recall does of being a sort of mainstream action science fiction movie with some of those elements. Yeah. And to be clear, like this movie is a mainstream sci-fi action movie. Like we haven't addressed the sort of 800 pound gorilla in the room or rather the 300 pound bodybuilder in the room. (laughs) This movie has Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. And, (laughs) you know, his presence is basically like he is a very large planetary body and his gravity just affects every aspect of the movie because it's all built around Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I found that super distracting. Actually, like, I would have much preferred this movie to not have Arnold Schwarzenegger. In it. I mean, I understand what you're saying because he's just 
Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, so this is my favorite thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. In almost every movie he's in, he's just this ordinary, like, middle American dude, or like this ordinary American who happens to be like a commando or a secret agent. And he just has like a perfectly ordinary Anglo-Saxon name. Yeah. Jingle all the way. He's uh, Howard Langston. In True Lies, he's just named like Harry. In Commando, I think his name is uh, John Matrix. <laughs> In Predator, I think his name is Dutch Burns. And nobody just addresses the fact that he has this thick Austrian accent. And he's just like this is random ass like American dude. And he's just Arnold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's like for somehow especially strong to me in this one because the whole thing is that he's supposed to be playing. He's supposed to be a super normal guy. Like it, it's it's emphasized that he's just Doug. Yep. <laughs> it's like. But then from the beginning, you get this scene at a construction site where he's just. The way I would describe any scene showing off Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscles in the scene, because you know he is a world champion, you know, bodybuilder. Uh, that that's how he got his start, and he's just so vascular. <laughs> Everything he does is vascular. <laughs> Again, to sort of speak to the idea that we are bad at remembering things, and I'll talk about specific aspects. But like in some ways, like some of the iconic moments and uh, signature lines and moments from this movie are a lot less over the top than I remember them being. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe they were less over the top, but I found <laughs> most things in this movie to be ridiculous. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. It's just like there are certain deliveries of certain lines. In my mind, a super over the top delivery in an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression voice. Whereas in reality, it's just Arnold Schwarzenegger saying the line <laughs> instead of being like, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll point those out with my terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger impression um, when, when the time comes. Perfect. But to your point, Arnold Schwarzenegger's face in this movie and his facial expressions are uh, very, shall we say, malleable. His face and the way it is manipulated and contorted into various ways that faces don't usually look is sort of an entertaining mini movie in and of itself. Yeah, I was going to say, there's like a, the sub theme to this movie is like face distortion. <laughs> I don't know. The director is friends with some special effects artist and was like, hey, dude, I'm going to give you a lot of screen time here. <laughs> Have fun with these prosthetics. And then I think another thing, perhaps it's not fair to always compare to RoboCop, but I think a lot of the jokes don't land as well as they do in RoboCop. I mean, there are some really great bits and really great moments in Total Recall, but overall, it just didn't feel fundamentally as funny. Yeah. Or they didn't fit into the movie quite as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like there's all these moments I can remember in, in RoboCop and being like, yes, that was a hilarious scene. That was a really funny delivery. And there's nothing in Total Recall that really stands out. Okay, there's there's one, but we'll, we'll get to it. Okay, I, I'm not going to say what one of mine is. I think we're almost certainly thinking of the same moment. <laughs> cool. And then, even though people are awful to each other in RoboCop, they are awful to each other in that they are generally just trying to shoot each other. Yeah. This movie seems, even though this sounds weird, uh, this almost seems worse when people are always just like gaslighting Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's, I have a line here that says, this is gaslighting the movie. And that also feels awful and just 
it's kind of just an icky undercurrent of the movie that maybe robocop didn't have yeah sure it feels a little bit more like insidious and actually wrong or something so yeah i can understand that yeah i mean overall you know i i still liked it but it wasn't quite the ah this is so ridiculous is the best thing ever like thing that i sort of expected it to be Mm. so unless there's anything you wanted to get to i guess we'll move on to our movie yeah i think that's it's time cool as mentioned before, uh, Total Recall, released in 1990, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and directed by Paul Verhoeven, previously directed Robocop, which was in our last episode. Um, we start with a pretty elaborate title sequence. It's text and uh, casting credits on a moving vertical red striped barred gradient background. And then we jump immediately from that into two people in a spacesuit on what we know as the audience to be the surface of Mars. I think it's probably just like a blue screen of like, and it's like they filmed it at the Grand Canyon or something and just <laughs> threw a red filter over the camera. It's definitely possible though. They did a lot of, this movie did have a lot of like special effects and special like set designs. So I don't know. Oh, so it might actually be like a matte painting background rather than just like blue, blue screen or green screen and then composited. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. So what I will say is this movie felt more polished than RoboCop. I agree. I think the effects blended into the movie better. There's no actual points where I was like, oh, that is distractingly not real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I will say is I I do wonder about some of the sort of set design choices that they made. But in terms of actual construction, they are in general larger scale and more elaborate than RoboCop, which is very just like grungy street level. Yeah, yeah. Two people with the spacesuit are walking on the surface of Mars. One of them is very obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger. You cannot miss him. Arnold trips over a rock or something. He falls down and smacks his face into a rock, causing suffocation and very prominent gurgling. It's, it's gross. <laughs> yes. Every scene that involved decompression, not a fan. Not because they weren't done well or whatever. I just it was too much. <laughs> yeah it's much more prominent in sort of the climactic scene because i don't think it's taken to full suffocation or whatever but you get a sense of it his face is like almost popping out of itself his eyes are prolapsing yeah it's it's gross but it turns out this is a dream and arnold is douglas quaid or as his wife calls him doug which is uh, no offense to any dougs out there but arnold schwarzenegger in no way seemed like a doug and I think that's actually a sense of what the movie wants to draw out of us. Yeah. Douglas Quaid, we'll call him Quaid for most of the movie. He is a construction worker with a fascination for Mars and an obsession with going to Mars for whatever reason. And he has a hot wife, played by Sharon Stone. Hot wife, two words. Important to make that distinction. <laughs> yeah, true. Post-coital breakfast reports are revealing that on Mars, insurgents led by someone named Quato are waging this sort of insurgent campaign against, against the Mars governor named Vilos Cohagen, and he is played by the same guy that played Dick Jones. Um, he's just really good at being these awful authority figures. So these insurgents are destabilizing the situation on Mars, threatening the Earth's supply of something called turbinium. It's not really that important it's just it's just a plot device yeah it's the unobtainium from avatar that's the word i was looking for unobtainium 
was literally trying to think of it and I couldn't come up with it. <laughs> On a public transport going to work, Doug sees an ad for a memory implantation service called Recall, and that's Recall with a K. He has a chat with his coworker at the construction site, uh, Harry, and Doug's coworker's only response is basically, don't f with your brain. Which, you know, sound advice coming from <laughs> that guy. In general, that is true, unless you have, you know, any number of neurological disorders that perhaps might require it, either electrically, device-wise, or chemically. Right. And when he emphasizes to don't f*** with your brain, he talks about his cousin or something having a terrible experience and having to get a lobotomy after visiting Recall, right? Yes. So adverse events uh, associated with this, <laughs> apparently lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fully understand that, but yes. <laughs> I also found this scene kind of funny. Like, this is where Arnold's just jackhammering as part of his job. <laughs> I love this because um, his co-worker is also doing this, but has a much smaller jackhammer. His co-worker is also a little chubby, and he's wearing like a full like sleeve shirt, right, while doing this. And then Arnold's just in this like <laughs> muscle shirt with cutoffs uh just very prominently jackhammering and uh as i mentioned before he is very vascular <laughs> yeah he's like oiled up and tanned and just like it's yeah it's a funny contrast but i i also like this scene because like we've just been introduced to a world where like Arnold wakes up and has like a full screen, like hollow TV built into the wall in his apartment, even though he's like a construction worker mm -hmm. and he like takes the subway and there's advertisements for memory transplants and space travel. And then his job is just to use a jackhammer. Like there's no robot to do that. We're still jackhammering stuff. <laughs> just, I don't see how these are both in the same world. This construction site is very mundane. Like you could have told me this was like a, a completely non-sci-fi construction site. I'd be like, yep. Yep. Checks out. This is a construction site in the 80s. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing to note is that the ad on the public transport was specifically said, you can get a virtual trip to Mars this way, which is really what sort of like grabs Arnold's attention because... As mentioned before, and perhaps we underplayed the extent to which this is a deal, but Arnold really wants to go to Mars, and his wife is just like, oh, oh it's gross and dry. Let's just take a cruise or something. Right, right. She emphasizes trying to like get away and go on vacation, and so this is like his, yeah, a callback to that. Doug has a consultation with a recall rep, um, despite his co-worker's warnings, and requests a trip to Mars specifically. There's a little funny point where um, Arnold is actually just like, yeah, well, what about the lobotomy? And um, and uh, and the rep's like, no, no, we've come so far. That doesn't happen anymore. Quaid is sold on the idea of the base of a basic two week trip to Mars. And the rep, you know, good salesperson um, upsells him to a premium package where he can have the memories of an alternate personality. Yeah, he. He calls this taking a trip away from yourself as well. An ego trip, he calls it. <laughs> That's right. And so he presents Quaid with a number of options. I think one's like Playboy. The other one is a Billionaire. And without hesitation, Quaid is like secret agent, <laughs> where he gets to be a womanizing James Bond type. So let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of what Recall purports to be able to do. So... Recall is effectively suggesting that they can implant false memories 
And it's not clear whether these are like constructed memories or whether they are memories that are like borrowed from somebody else, for example. Um, but basically they can implant memories as if you had experienced that thing. So instead of going on vacation, implant the memory like you did go on vacation because the effect in the end is the same. And in fact, they can offer you even better things like going on vacation as a secret agent. <laughs> now, that that's a weird and sort of inconsistent way to present this, right? Mm -hmm. This whole remembering things as an alternate personality, or even the idea of implanting these false memories, is it that you are remembering these things as if you experienced them? Or are you remembering that you went to recall and had this done to you and now you have these false memories? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It seems like there's oddities there. It also seems like there's oddities with the fact that this is like an outpatient procedure, <laughs> such that like, do these memories live in some sort of date timeline? Because like memory and time and space are so intricately involved. I, I just, uh, I don't know. Can you, <laughs> if you remember that on August 20th, you were both jackhammering and in some Mars base. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, what if you had anterograde amnesia and they tried to do this to you? Would it take? I don't know. And then there's this whole sense of self topic, which is like, because he spends some time convincing him that like, if you take this ego trip package, you actually will feel like you're living that other character's life. Like you'll have memories as if that was like truly you. But like, how do you reconcile that with the fact that you are you now and you were you before this trip? Like what? makes it believable that you're a secret agent where you legitimately think there's like spies and governments after you and have affairs with exotic women and he's, as he says right yeah exactly how do you reconcile the fact that you as a person presumably know that you went to this place and had this done to you and had this thing which i'm just going to refer to as excessively elaborate role play put into you as a person you would always just know that that was weirdly inauthentic and you were just like role-playing a secret agent now the movie does sort of explore the idea of what can happen if that sense of the implanted memory gets too strong right that's actually the whole idea that they try to gaslight him into thinking is happening sometimes mm -hmm. i guess the point is this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you think about it too hard <laughs> yeah exactly and maybe that's part of what makes total recall feel less immersive it's like you're it's actually kind of easy to catch on to these kind of like, well, does that like, how does this even work? How does that feel? And I think that's especially true just in general. None of us have received a memory implant. <laughs> and so it's hard to like conceptualize what that might be like. Yeah. I mean, like the idea that this is not scientifically sound is not necessarily something we'll always dock it points as a movie for and also like no movie is 100% perfect in not having plot holes to be honest that's one of my biggest beefs with online movie criticism and movie discourse so many youtube channels will just be like haha here's a plot hole gotcha haha here's a plot hole gotcha haha boom roasted this movie sucks that's like 90% of youtube movie criticism and it's not good mm -hmm. like just pointing out plot holes doesn't make for good film criticism content and so that's not what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. But at the same time, when they sort of, when enough of them sort of stack up on each other, you just sort of lose a little bit of, okay, I'm into this movie. Yeah. I, I think that's really it is significant enough or plentiful enough plot holes or similar types of errors start to be distracting mm -hmm. and like remove you from immersion. 
Like in RoboCop, the idea that you can resurrect a dead dude, I'm perfectly happy to hand wave that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing with this. I accept that memory implants can happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe or understand what the effects would be, (laughs) if that makes sense. Like, Right. Even once you accept the basic premise, the sort of effects and the way it's presented are still inconsistent within that world, even if you accept the basic premise. I think that's... yeah really what we're coming the conclusion we're sort of coming to here yeah exactly so quaid selects a few customization options before the session i love this because it's basically just like an rpg like character select scene where they're like what chick do you want to bang on your uh on your on your womanizing james bond secret agent mars vacation he's like these are the things i would want <laughs> and like he doesn't deliver it that way you know like that's just like my memory of what of arnold schwarzenegger in this movie is <laughs> he's actually much less over the top and much less like germanic <laughs> yeah but it's he's still arnold schwarzenegger <laughs> yes very much so so he selects that his preferences are a brunette with an athletic figure who is sleazy and demure, which those last two things seem to be sort of opposite, but whatever. Yeah. And of course, this person is designed around his dream that we saw at the beginning of the movie. Yes. So one thing I did not mention is that his wife, Sharon Stone, A, she is very different to this woman. She, Lori, his wife, is slender, blonde, and... Not necessarily sleazy. She's very sultry and... And not demure. (laughs) Yeah, she's super horny. (laughs) I think she propositions him like no fewer than like three or four times throughout the course of this movie, which is fine. They are purportedly married at this point anyways. (laughs) Purportedly. (laughs) Yes. She is at this point seemingly bothered by the presence of this woman in his dream. Like she specifically asks him, was that woman in your dream again? When he wakes up from it. Yes. And we will see why she cares about this so much soon. Let's talk about the actual device. It's basically like this giant throne chair thing with some restraints. It's like an MRI board that you can sit in, but that MRI board just has like light brights all around it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my first impression was MRI turned diagonally or something, where it's kind of just sitting above the chair. Interestingly enough, like, the machine does not operate how you might expect, which is that the MRI bore would, like, slide down over your head or something and do some weird stuff. It just kind of sits up there and light brights, (laughs) I guess. You kind of lean back into it a little bit. Yep, and these things, like, extend out and, like, sort of encircle your temple. Mm -hmm. They look like ECT therapy devices. (laughs) As they're beginning the session, I actually do like this little moment here. The tech is just like, yep, things hardly ever f*** up around here. (laughs) And so (laughs) casually continues on with the rest of the procedure. (laughs) Man, do you really want a tech saying that before like, you know, like maybe like a TMS session or something like that? (laughs) Because in terms of this being like an outpatient procedure that you just kind of walk in, a tech or like a specialist does it to you and you walk back out, transcranial magnetic stimulation or something like that is probably what i would compare it to yeah i mean there's i mean this is like one of the other weird parts of it i you never really get to see how the machine operates but several times in the session they talk about implants and they talk about lobotomies which are like removal of brain tissue but like the brain is never opened and accessed as far as i can tell by this machine 
Yeah, it's true. So whatever it's doing, it's like through like focused energy or some kind of or something. Yeah, which is, I mean, there's all sorts of non-invasive tech that we're aware of, whether that be temporal interference or non-invasive stimulations like ultrasound that could achieve something like this in a targeted way. And so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that in the future like this, you could have a more accurate version of those. So this procedure goes extremely wrong. Quaid begins raving like a lunatic about the people blowing his cover on Mars. He you know, attempts to assault the recall rep in Tex. And they call this incident a schizoid embolism, which... Uh, I mean, I guess we could just put those two words together. <laughs> they are things. <laughs> those are words. I don't know what a schizoid embolism is. I mean, an embolism is basically a physical blockage of a vessel. I think the most common one is pulmonary embolism. And so that adjective literally usually just like refers to where it is. Yes. So this is in the schizoid. <laughs> uh, yes. The noted brain region, the schizoid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> schizoid, I think, is just like a, it just refers to a general set of symptoms of psychiatric symptoms, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Though... <laughs> I think they're using schizoid here to be like kind of point towards schizophrenic, but schizoid really is like characterized by apathy. So like a schizoid personality disorder is somebody who's like apathetic, like solitary, cold, etc. Oh, okay. And so it, it's kind of funny because <laughs> it further doesn't make sense. They reference a schizoid embolism a couple of times in the movie. At recall, the techs and the sales rep managed to subdue Arnold slash Quaid. Um, we're just going to use those names interchangeably. Yeah. He's just so prominently Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's no way around it. The doctor there is concerned. He's like, oh, he's raving about Mars and being and his mission and... So the sales rep basically just thinks that um, the implanted memories have just kind of run amok and have taken over Quaid's personality. But the doctor tells him, we haven't done anything yet. This is just him. And so whatever episode he is having is the result of real erased memories of him being a secret agent. And they're like, oh, oh, shit. oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I apparently the only thing they've kind of administered to him at this point is that drug they inject him with to kind of begin the procedure i i don't know why i'm obsessed with this drug i think it's because it has a crazy name they called it dreamline or something like that i don't know what it's supposed to do they never say but seemingly that's the thing that like elicits this memory response i mean i guess they kind of started the machine but they didn't do any implant yet right of memory yeah exactly well also it's like a sedative right when he has his episode and starts trying to like break out and assault them the doctor like repeatedly stabs him with that needle yeah. and the dreamline administering to him. I think it might just be a sedative. Maybe that's all that it is. Whatever it is, it brought back some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the conclusion that whatever's going on is the result of real erased memories of him being a true secret agency. And like in the captions, like agency is capitalized. So it's like this big boogeyman that... They don't want to mess with whatever's going on is way above their pay grade. So they erase his memories of having been to recall. And so these, this sort of scene establishes the idea that erasing memories is apparently a fairly routine thing that recall can do and happens to people that they can identify. Yeah. And they have granularity enough over erasing memories that they can just kind of like turn it back a little bit. 
because they basically try it seems like attempted to just erase memories up to like him arriving at the facility and so they dump him in a cab and send him home erasing any memories of his visit to recall now on the way home uh quaid encounters his co-worker harry who's like hey did you go to recall what's up what's up with that and quaid's like no no i didn't harry doesn't believe him and immediately abducts him at gunpoint which is like a what the fuck is happening moment <laughs> right so you as a viewer don't quite know what's going on yet because harry this short fat little bald guy is now abducting quaid and being like you just had to go and messing with mars you couldn't just leave it alone and quaid is just confused but something seems to have unlocked in quaid where this mild-mannered, highly muscular man, something clicks in him and he is able to fight and kill all of his attackers with combat skills that you would expect from a secret agent of some kind. And not from Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to add on to this, this killing is slightly more violent than I thought it would be in that there's like a lot of blood <laughs> involved in this street fight. I guess what amounts to like a back alley scuffle with guns but continue this will continue to be a theme <laughs> so we'll draw another sort of comparison to robocop again but like robocop kind of like throws you into the ultra violence and gore basically right off the bat and actually like in some ways kind of gets the most gory things out of the way in the first 20 to 30 minutes total recall kind of builds yeah True. It gets a lot more extreme. And I, I don't know what, what how far into the movie we are at this point, but up to this point, it's been a construction worker visiting a memory facility. <laughs> it's like, yeah, very chill. Yeah. And then this is where this is the point where things uh, just sort of go downhill for Quaid. He panics and he runs home and tells his wife about what's going on. Lori is dressed in this like tube top sports bra with like a wrestling singlet. And she's like, doing like Wii tennis with a holographic thing, teaching her how to play tennis. Yeah, which <laughs> to me was like the most 90s part of this movie. I don't know why, but like it's a trope that shows up in so many movies of working man with stay-at-home wife who does tennis lessons. <laughs> it was kind of funny. So Lori thinks that Quaid is delusional and she calls recall brain butchers. And despite him telling her not to call someone, she video phones this intimidating looking dude, despite Doug's objections. Doug runs into the bathroom to sort of wash all the blood on his hands. There's a lot of blood on his hands right now. Literal, actual blood. Metaphorically, only like four people at this point that we know of. <laughs> only four. <laughs> So as he leaves the bathroom, he is attacked by an unknown assailant and shot at. He scuffles with this unknown assailant. And when he manages to turn the lights back on, who is this assailant? It's his wife. <laughs> yes. What I do want to point out is that twice during this scuffle, Lori kicks him in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> the first time she like kicks him in the, in the junk, like he actually kind of no sells it. But like the second time, he actually does like double over, although not necessarily as much as you might think, because usually it's like an incapacitating blow. Right. After Quaid subdues Lori, she reveals that she has no idea who he is. She is an agent playing his wife, and any memories that they have before six weeks ago were all implanted. And that she's just like, 
I just work here, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then she's like, but you're the best client I've ever had to watch. And she tries to seduce him again. And then he realizes what she's doing is he detects that there's additional people coming up to like assail them. And this is where he delivers a line that you maybe didn't care about. But to me, it was just like, oh, my God, they say that in Jurassic Park. He's like, ah, clever girl. Yes. (laughs) I'd forgotten about that, but I do remember that specifically. (laughs) I think the funny thing to me about this scene is that seemingly it almost works. Yeah. She's, you know, sitting there being all seductive and she's already reasonably scantily clad. She's in what, like, basically a sports bra and like, and and workout tights. Mm -hmm. And so she's sitting there and you see like, he's like, all right, I could see that this is maybe a thing. Yeah. And then he sees like the people coming up, right? Yeah. So he sees the cronies coming up and uh, closed fist just punches her in the face and then leaves. Which I thought was crazy. <laughs> like Somehow that was like shocking to me. They're, like the men on women violence is not common in movies like that. Especially like full on closed fist, large 250 pound man, full punch, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just clocks her and she's like down. so the cronies they have a tracker on him i love how boxy all of the tech is i know they imagined so many cool like future inventions but constrained by like 1990s crt monitors (laughs) i I just don't think that they had a sense of what computers would be capable of 30 years later and 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 that's fine yeah it's fair but in terms of set design, it's very noticeable. Like all the cars, they have the futuristic gull wing vertical doors and stuff, but everything is just fundamentally very boxy. So there's an action set piece through the subway. We're not going to go beat by beat through this fight. What I will say is that a non-zero number of innocent bystanders are killed in this shootout in public transport. Yeah, like, holy shit. This is like a packed New York subway setup like even more packed than it is in real life escalators fully packed with people and they just start open firing like automatic weapons into the crowd it's bad yeah the most shocking part of this is there's this one dude that arnold literally just grabs the human shield he's holding him up with his left arm as a shield and like taking cover behind him while pointing his gun over this dead dude's shoulder and and that guy gets messed up yeah to be very clear, that guy is super dead. <laughs> you know what ED209 does to that junior executive in that boardroom scene? This happens to that guy. <laughs> Quaid manages to escape to, you know, sci-fi trope, dingy motel in like an undercity. Yeah, it's like, is this the Matrix? <laughs> he is called at that hotel by a mystery person at a payphone outside. Which, to, for some reason to me, it was very funny that that payphone ended up being literally just outside the room. He called him and then he just like looks out the window and he's like 12 feet away. (laughs) So this agency buddy calls Quaid at the motel and tells Quaid how to evade this tracker and then dead drops the suitcase at the uh, payphone outside. So Nick, what is the way that this futuristic bug slash GPS tracker can be foiled? (laughs) So first off, you go into the dingy motel bathroom and you get a towel. You wet the towel in the sink and you wrap it around your head. Foiled. <laughs> I think it's literally just a wet towel wrapped, wrapped around your head. And whatever tech this is, now it no longer works. <laughs> it muffles the signal, as they say. Yes. I mean, I, I love this because it, like, Arnold just looks ridiculous with this thing on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger is just like the size of a house. Yeah. The turban is not proportional. No. It's like this 
tiny little thing. He just has a tire, tiny, like single layered wet towel wrapped around his head. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And so as he goes outside to try and pick up the, uh, the suitcase, an old lady tries to steal it from, from him. So you get this great scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger is wearing a wet towel on his head and wrestling a suitcase from an old woman. <laughs> when you describe it that way, it seems so much better. <laughs> it's ridiculous. He participates in like an action chase scene from this point forward, wearing the wet towel. <laughs> yes. Arnold manages to escape the cronies that have pursued him to this motel in a cab that he hijacks. This is a funny scene. Because it's the typical, like, cab trope of follow that car or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. drive, drive, drive. He jumps into this cab, but it's like a robot driver. And it's like, where would you like to go? And he's like, drive, drive, drive. And it's like, I don't know that location. Where would you like to go? (laughs) So to be clear here, when we say a robot driver, we don't mean like a disembodied voice Mm -hmm. where there's like this little box and you're just like, Alexa, take me to, you know, this place. No, there's like this puppet looking thing dressed up like an old style cabbie with fully articulated mouth that moves when he talks. My favorite thing about this is this robo cabbie apparently does not do navigation through like onboard control of wheels or steering or whatever. No, it literally has a a robo cabbie with articulated arms that moves around a joystick to like navigate this very boxy cab. It's so strange. We also discovered that the robot itself is the source of the intelligence because to get driving arnold rips the robot cabbie out of the like console and so it's not connected to the cab anymore but it's still talking and so it is like an independent being i guess and he takes the joystick himself so he manages to drive off to a warehouse area and (laughs) this is hilarious because the robo cabbie attempts to collect the fare and (laughs) And he stiffs the RoboCabbie on the fair. And what is the RoboCabbie's response to this? I don't remember. Oh, the car literally just explodes. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> okay, so I remember this part because it's like a very clear point where Quaid starts being much more of a jerk. Mm-hmm. So far up to this point, he's like this sort of mild-mannered kind of quiet dude. But like... In the last 10 minutes, he's engaged in, you know, multiple firefights. He's wrestled a suitcase away from an old lady. He tells this robo-cabbie, sue me, you dickhead, <laughs> like when it tries to uh, collect the fare. The cab just explodes when he tries to stiff the cabbie, which is, which is fun fact, apparently how the people are able, the cronies are able to track him because the tracker doesn't work anymore because of the uh, turbine thing. Right. But the cronies, they have a call with their boss, Cohagen where they're told that there was an explosion somewhere. They're like, all right, let's go there. But in this sort of little conference between the head crony, who we will learn is named Richter and Cohagen, they say the name of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) He's going to have total recall soon. (laughs) Yes. Which actually does not turn out to be true. Like he actually has to like get his memories prodded out of him some way, which we'll get to. Yeah, this was a man. What was the movie we just watched with the deep brain stimulator? Terminal Man. Yeah, this is not Terminal Man, where they have a very clear <laughs> countdown to when he gets full memory back. This is a uh, doesn't happen. So at this abandoned warehouse or whatever, where Quaid has fled to, he opens up the suitcase and the suitcase is very typical, like spy safe deposit box sort of stuff. Money, fake IDs, 
spy gadgets and this hilariously large fold-out screen that plays a video message from, well, himself. Yeah, so this is kind of weird. I mean, at this point, we've gathered that maybe he really did have a secret past, and this is not all just weird (laughs) events. And it's basically a message from his like past identity before his memory was erased, talking about how he was a secret agent and that he was worried that somebody was going to come wipe his memory. So he created this box for his future self. Right. And so this past identity is named Hauser. The video message says, if you're watching this, Kohagen has gotten to you. He's erased your memories and implanted you as this Quaid persona. And in order to get them back, you must go to Mars. And so this is probably one of the parts where I was most surprised at my memory being incorrect of Arnold's delivery of a line. If you were to ask me to like do the get your ass to Mars line, I would do, I'm going to do it. It's like this super over the top Arnold Schwarzenegger complete with gurgling. Quaid, get your ass to Mars. (laughs) Up until I rewatched it, that was my memory of how this scene was. But that's not actually how he delivers it. No, it's much more subdued. Yeah, he's like, get your ass to Mars. That's it. No, like, (laughs) Germanic gurgling. (laughs) But you do get to hear the line a hundred times because the, I guess the video recorder gets stuck on this when it gets damaged in a subsequent firefight. Yes. So in this process, I think probably the second most sort of iconic uh, moment from this movie is, so Hauser tells Quaid how to remove the tracker from his head. Which is... With a fun little device, uh, which I don't even know how to describe it. it. Basically, it's a grabber claw that comes out through a little tube. And he's supposed to just ram this up his nose really hard. And then it like automatically extracts the tracking device. And this is where we get some fun with face distortion. Yeah. So this tracker is like... I mean, it looks like a bullet with an LED at the top of it. But the weird thing is, it's encased within this very, very large sphere. Like, larger than golf ball sized. (laughs) Yes. And somehow, he's able to, like, stretch his nose and pull this thing out of an orifice that is significantly smaller than a golf ball. Yeah. And I think the premise here is that it's in his brain or something, right? That it's up inside his face. Like the the place they're pulling it from is bone. So I don't fully understand what, where this thing even comes from. I mean, I was just thinking it's just like sitting on the inside of it's like the sinus or something, right? The sinus cavity. And that's, you just go through the nose and you pull it out there. Yeah, but it's this bone layer there. It's to get into that sinus bone. That sinus isn't some like, you're not holding golf balls in your sinuses. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, I, I agree with that. I guess to me, like it just the visual of his nose stretching was just like so striking. I was like that. How is that orifice accommodating that item? Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of like literally striking because you can't show that transition smoothly because it doesn't make any physiological sense. <laughs> yeah. So you go from seeing him stick the tube up his nose to like next scene is his face has a golf ball size swelling in between his eyes as he's like pulling this thing out of his nose. And it's it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> it is gross and hilarious. <laughs> so he does that and he manages to evade the cronies tracking him by sticking the thing to a rat. And so you get this fun sequence where the uh, cronies pursuing him are like shooting at air and rats because they think that's where he is, but it's on a rat. It's funny. (laughs) We then 
transition very quickly to what we are told is Mars. And I, I don't understand this scene. The only words I have are weird immigration Mars sequence. Yeah, I mean, this whole scene is weird. <laughs> like, I don't understand its context. I don't understand where it came from. Like, literally how it became possible, given the tools that are employed here. Yeah. So m- maybe you can tell who we get introduced to at the beginning of the scene. <laughs> We're at Mars Border Control or whatever, right? At the spaceport. And we see this large, heavyset lady walk up to the counter. And as an audience, I think the context is that we understand this is somehow Quaid in disguise. Yeah. The execution of it is just so odd. The immigration officer asks, how long are you staying in Mars? And the lady says, two weeks. And in the meantime, Richter and his deputy cronies are also arriving at the same time, somehow coincidentally. And then the immigration officer or whatever asks this heavyset lady to declare any vegetables or meats or whatever. And the lady just simply repeats, two weeks, which is not an answer to this guy's question. No. And this is where it starts getting weird. I mean, it already is weird because if it's just a disguise, why did Arnold say two weeks? <laughs> like, why didn't he say something else? It makes it seem like this woman is a robot. Yes, uh, like a pre-programmed robot that can only say two weeks. But we also find out that's not true. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. While this little weirdness is playing out, the cronies are about to get into an elevator when they see this heavyset lady, her face just starts spazzing and going crazy. And she's just saying two weeks, two weeks. As her face is just stretching and distorting and turning red, Richter sees this situation happening and he immediately decides, that's Quaid. And I don't know what led him to this conclusion that that's Quaid. I like, what? Why? Yeah, I, I have no idea. He's some like Quaid whisperer, <laughs> follows and understands Quaid's mannerisms. And I, I don't know. He's just looking for anything odd, I guess. Yeah. Like, but, so at some point, this lady is, is just spazzing out. And then at some point, her face literally just unfolds. Which is an impressive CGI. Whatever special effects like mechatronics thing they did for this was visually impressive in some ways, but like was unnecessary. <laughs> yes. It's weird. Her face basically disassembles itself into a bunch of segments and refolds itself into like almost like this helmet above him. And so what you have there is just Arnold Schwarzenegger in drag. Yeah. And nobody actually assailing him, even though they like watched this thing unfold and happen. It's I don't fully get what their motive is either. Well, I mean, now one thing we haven't talked about is that um, Kohaken actually wants Quaid alive for whatever reason. Now, we, we don't know why. Uh, we are told by Hauser when Hauser is talking via video message to his future self that Hauser knows things that could really threaten Kohagen and that the only way to retrieve these memories is to get to Mars. But we are explicitly told through conversations between Kohagen and his crony that Kohagen specifically wants Quaid alive. And we don't know why. I suppose that's one reason why they don't just straight up shoot the dude right there. Yeah. True. In this sequence, it's ended when, and this is one of the parts that doesn't make sense to me. He tosses like the woman disguise helmet at a bunch of the Mars security soldiers or whatever, right? And they catch it inexplicably. If somebody throws a thing at me, I'm probably just being like, bat that thing away. Yeah. They catch it. And the head says, 
I forget what it says, but it says something like get ready for boom or something. I don't know. It like some sort of jokey one liner referencing mm-hmm. that the fact that it's about to blow up. Yeah. So clearly this thing could say things other than two weeks. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Why not program it to say nothing to declare and then go on to immigration and none of this happens. Again, we're pointing at plot holes, but this is like a bad one. <laughs> I feel like this whole scene is unnecessary and we could have just had Quaid go to Mars. Yeah. Now, what the scene does give us an excuse to experience is the idea that Mars is like this sort of enclosed system, right? Yeah, they're on a space base that is protecting them from a harsh outside environment. Yes. When this bomb blows up, it seemingly ruptures whatever protection there is. And so explosive decompression happens with a bunch of people being sucked out, the air is being sucked out. So I am not a planetary scientist or a, an astronomer of any kind. All I know about Mars's atmosphere is that it is much, much, much thinner than Earth's. Mm-hmm. The pressure is much lower. Mm-hmm. The air is not breathable due to not being like having the same composition. Mm-hmm. But despite its atmosphere being thinner... It is not a vacuum to the degree where the pressure differential would like literally like cause explosive decompression. At least I don't think that's the case. I don't know the pressure differential enough either. But what I can say is that it would not manifest in the way that it did, which is that like it's like this constant sucking vacuum for like (laughs) minutes in this scene. (laughs) All these decompression events are like fast right as soon as you empty a pressurized container it's been depressurized and like there's not a continued sucking unless you're continuing to hard pressurize that container and you just basically have like a wind current right and that's i guess what's happening here because they're just like these people are (laughs) struggling through this like pressure event for a long time oh yeah multiple minutes of people just trying to grab onto whatever they can to avoid being sucked into you know the the void of the exterior of mars some of them don't succeed and do get sucked into that thing and die a presumably awful death at some point somebody manages to hit the lockdown button or whatever and seal everything off and quaid escapes and then this weird and unnecessary scene is over yep so on mars richter is getting his ass chewed out by his boss cohagen is just he's basically just dick jones on mars yeah this guy's kind of a dick (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we get introduced, uh, it's actually earlier, I think, in the sequence, but we get introduced to the fact that this guy has recently raised the price of air on Mars. I actually like how simplistic you can capture, like, this guy is an asshole by just saying he raised the price of air because it just sounds horrific. And that'll be important as to why Quaid is such a threat to Cohagen. Quaid follows Hauser's instructions, then checks into a hotel and receives the location of a brothel and a girl to ask for. Quaid is taken there by a streetwise cabbie named Benny. So when he's getting into this cab, a straight up firefight between rebels and Mars security forces just erupts all around them. And Benny just does not care. Yeah, he's like opening the door for him. He's like, get in the vehicle. We got to get going. <laughs> like, <laughs> Welcome to Mars, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. That's a nice bit of storytelling that just tells you, like, this is just the current state of Mars. You know, random firefights on the street, sectarian violence to the degree where Benny just is unconcerned with it. Again, tropes. The brothel is located in, like, an undercity area. The classic sci-fi dystopian undercity that has a large population of mutants that have been disfigured and mutated 
because Cohagen is too cheap to build proper protection against solar radiation. And these uh, mutants look pretty gnarly. Yeah, they're really mutant mutanty. <laughs> yeah, this is not like X-Men, where all the mutants are designed to be conventionally attractive so that you as a movie-going audience will watch these hot mutants do superhero things. That is not the kind of mutant that we're talking about here. No. They are disfigured. They are gross. For the most part. A lot of them have full face prosthetics and stuff to really sell the idea of how truly mutated they are. At the brothel, Quaid meets the person he was instructed to meet, which is Melina. Um, oh, actually, that reminds me. There's a fun little part in the hotel scene where he's, where he's checking in and gets the note saying, go talk to Melina at wherever, right? Yeah. He asks for a pen from the concierge and then writes Melina to make sure that his handwriting matches the note that he's looking at. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty interesting because this shows some sort of preservation of self, right? Or like motor memory. If you'll recall from our 51st States episode where we took a deep dive into memory and patient HM, task-related memory and motor memories were actually preserved in patient HM. Now, if you'll recall, patient HM was a um, patient that had brain surgery to correct debilitating seizures caused by epilepsy. Unfortunately, there were damage to long-term memory areas in his brain, and so he was incapable of basically remembering anything beyond around you know a few minutes. But in the research they did, they found that he was able to perform motor tasks that they taught him, although he would actually forget the events where he learned them. Mm-hmm. So I really like this because this seems to kind of sort of suggest that that motor memory is preserved because I assume that's just what handwriting is. What's the neural basis of handwriting, Nick? Yes. I say with confidence that I should not possess <laughs> the signature is a highly preserved task-related motor memory. I think I'm going to steal that as my Nero moment <laughs> now that I think about it. He goes to the brothel. This brothel is hilarious. It's like every seedy like sci-fi bar you've ever seen in like a cyberpunk movie or whatever. Just like rolled into one. Complete with a hooker with three boobs. Yeah, I mean, that is literally the only thing I knew about this movie before I watched it. Was that that character existed. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, apparently that made a strong impact on, on many people. <laughs> ah, okay. So I actually had never seen that scene because um, I have only seen this movie like on TV in chunks. Ah, I see. So I had never seen the uh, triple-breasted prostitute. Yep. Uh, apparently very popular in the CD bar, uh, but also in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very striking image. So uh, Quaid is not there to meet the triple-breasted working girl. He is there to meet Melina, who is apparently one of the high-end escorts at this brothel. And so he has to jump through a few hoops and punch a few people to get some time with her. But she seemingly recognizes him, calls, his, calls him Hauser, takes him up to her room, and slaps him and immediately berates him for ghosting her. And does not believe him um, when he says that he can't remember her or anything about this and that his memory has been wiped. He could have done a way better job trying to explain it, but he didn't. Oh, how does he start off? He was like, I don't remember you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like with no explanation of, of what or why. I don't know who you are. Like that's that's how he starts off. And when when somebody is angry with you for ghosting them, maybe don't lead with 
denying any memory of them. Yeah. Maybe explain the situation. <laughs> yeah. There's also like no apology. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like so many things have happened to me. It's been confusing. I don't remember you. This is why. It's just like a, I don't remember you. It's like, <laughs> that's it. That's his explanation. I don't blame Melina. She doesn't have time for any of this and just shoes him away. Yep. And so then we move into Quaid watching the news um, in his hotel suite. On the news, Cohagen is declaring martial law when Quaid receives a knock on his door and he is visited by someone purporting to be a recall rep. And he is claiming that he has projected into Quaid's mind and that everything Quaid has is experiencing since leaving recall is a delusion and that he must come with this recall rep if he wants to live. This sequence just does not land for me. And it's simply because this sequence is just so undercut by the rest of the movie. We have scenes of independent characters that are not Arnold Schwarzenegger talking to each other. Like this guy, you know that this dude is just gaslighting Quaid and like it's, there's no tension there, I don't think. So so that's interesting because I I see what you mean, Mm -hmm. but... The way that I interpreted this, like, it seems like you assume that, like, we as the viewer have some sort of, like, omniscience to the real world happenings, and we would see Quaid behaving delusionally. But I guess what I had taken it to mean is that we were basically seeing the world through Quaid's, like, delusioned mind. Therefore, all of this could be true, and this was some sort of, like, inception injection of this agent character, and that Quaid had just been, like imagining everything that had been happening basically what i will say is that it, for inception specifically right they sort of present the idea that this person's mind is a whole dream world in and of itself right that's the entire reason they recruit elliot page's character to build out this dream world to have an architecture such that they can accomplish what they want yeah Killian Murphy's character, I I remember no character names from that movie. (laughs) They established very early on that this whole construction can have aspects of it independent of him. Yeah. And also just the POV characters are not Killian Murphy. So just from like a practical perspective, like that you're kind of sold on that idea early. For me, because that sort of isn't established in this movie, And it's just presented that whatever is happening is at face value, including the scenes where like cronies are talking to each other with no involvement from Quaid. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, I just fundamentally look at this scene. I'm just like, there is no way you can actually get the movie watching audience to believe that this is something like it's believable that Quaid might believe it, but it's the audience absolutely should not believe it. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can see your point. And I agree with you more than I did. I, I, I still bought into the scene a little bit more than you did. So the recall rep, who actually is the person that was on the ad that Quaid uh, saw in the subway, he tells Quaid that Quaid must take a literal actual red pill to be able to get out of this psychosis situation. And also to sell this idea, they point out all of the immense coincidences and serendipitous aspects of like the help he has received along the way that had to happen to get Quaid to this point. Mm-hmm. I actually like that because it makes you think like, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, okay. And that becomes important a little bit later. And their closer is they bring in Lori. Yeah. I don't know why they do that. 
Yeah, and she's basically like, Quaid, I am your real wife. This is a projection of me. I'm in your psychosis dream. Come out, come with us. Yeah, the scene is literally just this doctor and Laurie just gaslighting the shit out of Quaid. Yeah. So Quaid is beginning to crack. Oh, also, Quaid is very much in control of this situation. He's got a gun to this dude's head. So he is at the point where he's about to take the red pill when he notices a bead of sweat running down this dude's cheek. And this guy should not be nervous if he's just here to try to help get Quaid out because supposedly nothing bad can happen to this guy. Quaid established this earlier that this guy was like outside of the psychosis dream. And this guy's like, oh yeah, if you kill me, it won't affect me, but you'll be stuck in psychosis forever. So this guy shouldn't be nervous, but he is. Upon seeing this bead of sweat, Quaid just shoots a dude in the head. Laurie drops any pretense of being the dutiful wife trying to pull Quaid out of this situation. Several cronies bust through the drywall from the other room and subdue Quaid. And Laurie kicks Lori kicks Doug in the dick a couple times. Theme. Theme <laughs> yeah. is so important to film. <laughs> <laughs> As Quaid is being transported and captured, he is rescued by a machine gun wielding Melina. In this little sequence, Doug kills Laurie. This is probably, in my mind, sort of the second most memorable line from this movie, where in a last bit of gaslighting, Laurie is attempting to save her life as she's like being at, held at gunpoint by Quaid. She's like, you wouldn't kill me, Quaid. We're married. And then <laughs> Arnold just does not care. He's like, he shoots her immediately in the head, kills her, and then says, consider that our divorce. <laughs> <laughs> And then <laughs> Melina gets another good zinger into. She's like, that was your wife? She was a bitch. <laughs> yeah. So something we haven't talked about up to this point is that Lori actually is married to somebody else. Yes. Okay. That's correct. So Lori, in the first scene where like Lori's in like the workout clothes, right? Mm -hmm. The cronies actually come meet with her after she's gotten cold cocked by Quaid. And they're like, where is he? And then she just like starts making out with Richter. <laughs> and then they tease Richter for saying like, I bet she wasn't having a bad time. Like whatever being with Quaid. Yeah. So poor Richter is literally being cucked by, by Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> it's rough, man. Of course. I mean, Richter sucks. He shoots plenty of innocent people and will continue to shoot plenty of innocent people. So you don't particularly feel bad for him but it's it, it's not it's not great <laughs> so melina rescues quaid and they flee it turns out that melina is a member of the rebels and intends to take him to their leader quato so benny evacuates them to the brothel where they escape through a secret tunnel that's just there in full view of everyone in the bar slash brothel but they are no snitches because <laughs> when people show up they do not lead them down the secret tunnel they do not. They just get shot to hell instead. So Richter tries to interrogate the three-breasted working girl. And when she just sort of dismisses him, he shoots her multiple times in the back and kills her, uh, which triggers a firefight between all the working girls and patrons and the Mars security forces. And they refuse to give up Doug and Melina. Also, what a preposterously well-armed brothel. Oh my god. Yeah. They are armed to the teeth. But... Given that they are like rebel forces, effectively, maybe it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
without missing a beat. The bartender, the working girls, they just start reaching behind the counter, tossing weapons to everyone. As if this is like, it's like just an ordinary Tuesday. It happens every week. Yeah. So um, they seem to have Quaid cornered, but for whatever reason, Cohagen orders Richter to leave them alone and retreat. And then he cuts off all air to the sector, leaving them to eventually asphyxiate. Uh, so at the rebel base, we meet the rebel leader, Quato. In hell. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> uh, describe Quato to us, Nick. <laughs> I think you you describe him better as a psychic Chucky doll attached to a man's torso. <laughs> this thing looks horrible. Just just Google this thing and look at it. It's wrinkly. It is it. It glistens. Uh, it speaks yeah, horrifically. <laughs> I mean, this thing seemingly is its existence is pain. Yeah, it is. What I will say is it, it's interesting because he is very much a good guy. And it's not normal to present good guys as looking that horrific and off putting. True. Yeah, that's a. Uh... That's a really good point. That's normally a visual cue we get for the bad guys, which actually is kind of interesting because it, I mean, this movie attempts to make it seem like, I mean, there are people who are obviously bad, but it's not clear that Quato is necessarily good in the way the movie kind of presents him in that like, oh yeah, rebels, like shooting people, like, is he like pushing for the right cause? What are his motives? And this is where we kind of find them out and find out that he is good. <laughs> He's struggling against the tyrannical governor, Cohagen, right? Like kind of inherently where that's coded so that he is the good guy no matter what. Sure. Because Cohagen is just unambiguously awful. Yeah, yeah. To your point, Qualto doesn't actually know what Quaid knows. And the things that are set in motion, those actions end up being good. But like Qualto doesn't actually know that until Quaid shows up, right? Mm-hmm. So this awful world's worst baby Bjorn, he, he probes Quaid's mind. Oh, also, mutants are apparently psychic. We didn't talk about that, but that's just true, apparently. So he probes Quaid's mind to sort of restore Quaid's memories. And, and so we finally get some answers on why Quaid is being pursued by Cohagen. Quaid, with Cohagen, came across a giant alien mechanism that would make air but seemingly, this mechanism also destroys the valuable turbinium in the process. So that's sort of like a double whammy. Activating it would break Cohagen's control by breaking his monopoly on the air supply. And then it also threatens the turbinium shipments in the whole, you know, the spice must flow sort of deal. Dude, he says turbinium must flow in this movie. Hell yeah. It's good. I'm looking, I'm so, I'm looking so forward to uh, Dune 2. <laughs> yeah, same. Unfortunately, after this is revealed, Mars soldiers storm the rebel base, killing the shit out of most of the rebels. And then Quato, Benny, oh yeah, Benny's here. Melina and Quaid try to escape to an airlock and try to start putting on space suits to go outside to escape. But Benny reveals that he's working for Cohagen, shoots Quato, and you see this little fetus Chucky doll thing get shot in the head close up. It's gross. I don't know. I've said that a hundred times about this movie, but this movie's gross. <laughs> yeah. And then hands them over to Richter. And Quato's dying message to Quaid is, activate the reactor. Which, like, duh. Yeah. Yeah. We all want to do that. We all want that to happen. 
the grossness doesn't end here because this next scene is Kohagen gloating over Quato's body and like examining in close up the bullet hole to the Chucky doll. It's like Paul Verhoeven was like, well, we paid for this doll and we paid to have its brains blowed out. We're, I'm getting my money's worth. I'm, I'm making you look at Quato. <laughs> but here we get a even bigger twist, right? Yes, a double double cross or whatever you want to call it. Kohigan reveals to the room that the whole setup was to plant an unknowing double agent into the rebels. So basically, actually, Hauser slash Doug has actually been working for Kohagen correctly the whole time. And this is like the plan all along. And so Quaid is essentially an unknown sleeper agent. All of the things he's doing that he thinks are to undermine Kohagen were orchestrated by Hauser and Kohagen to embed him into the resistance. And this is because Quato is psychic and presumably can sniff out any sort of ill intent or attempts to infiltrate. Right. So this was a way to get past that. But what about Benny? What about Benny? <laughs> if they can sniff out like sort of undercover agents or like ill intent, then what about Benny? Shouldn't they have been like, yo, something's wrong with this dude. We saw it with our brains. It seems like their psychic thing has to be pretty like purposeful or whatever, right? So like maybe they didn't have the time to sniff out the cab driver who just showed up because like they had to like probe Quaid's mind every time that they did it. Okay, fair enough. So Cohagen plans to reinsert Hauser's memories into Quaid. Turns out they're like BFFs, which is why Cohagen has wanted Quaid to be taken alive. In doing so, this will erase the Quaid persona. And then he's also going to brainwash Melina and turn her into Hauser's sex slave. Yeah, he's pretty explicit about that. A little bit weird. Anyway. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of reconstituting Hauser as a person. Yeah, so it's treated like memory. But as we've talked about in other memory episodes, personality and like sense of self is there's different types of memory, I guess we should say, just to put it simply. And most of the memories we've been like messing with so far, even though we touched on it a little bit earlier, are these kind of like declarative or explicit memories like that thing happened to me. I remember those events. But now we're talking about something a little bit different. So far, the idea that the movie has presented is that Quaid has had false memories implanted into him and that those memories make him who he is. It has not necessarily sold us on the idea that Hauser's personality was excised, somehow preserved, and then they're going to put these back in. And then the movie kind of conflates those things with memories, which is what we're sort of denying as an idea here. Yeah, I, I think this changes what the scope of the memory machine really does and can do it also points at this i mentioned earlier it wasn't clear whether the memory machine was constructing memories and giving to people or like literally inserting when they talk about the ego trip memories that had existed somewhere else before because in this case what we're pointing out is that memories can be downloaded via the memory machine if you can like take hauser's personality and like memories and go stick them in a data bank somewhere and retrieve them it's odd that original hauser would agree to this because in the sort of like way that the movie has presented this to us so far, that Hauser is dead and gone and is never coming back. Whatever is coming back is just this same person. It's just new Quaid, but with Hauser's memories. It's not as if Hauser is this discrete consciousness 
that they removed and stuck in a memory bank in some sort of sci-fi way and is still conscious. Right. And then re-implant and it's that same person he gets to live his awful, awful life now. Yeah. But they're basically just creating a new Hauser and that old Hauser is now dead. Yeah. It, again, doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> or implies like a, a very different functioning than we had originally understood. It, it sort of veers and takes that turn and it doesn't quite make sense to us, but that's okay, I guess. I mean, it presents an interesting conundrum for the movie right now. Yes. What is it that Quaid says when uh, when Cohagen tells him you'll enjoy being Hauser? I think he said something like, nah, dude, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. Uh, they attempt to do this. Quaid escapes the machine by literally being too muscular for the restraints. That was bad planning. He manages to break out of the restraints. He frees Molina and then kills several techs in extremely gruesome fashion in this whole process. So there's a quick little scene where Cohagen finally gives Richter permission to kill Quaid. Which is interesting because he doesn't know this has happened yet, from my understanding. And there's this nice little scene where, in anger, Cohagen lashes out at his, like, aquarium or whatever and breaks it. And you see, like, the fish out of water on the floor, like, with gaping mouths, like, blah, and gasping for oxygen. And it's a nice little, uh, if heavy-handed um, parallel to to the next scene, which is all the Undercity residents sort of falling asleep from asphyxiation. Yeah, it's sad. Melina and Quaid trying to make their way to the reactor after escaping, and Benny corners them in a giant drill excavator. We were actually shown this earlier in the movie. Cherkov's drill excavator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I didn't call attention to it, but now I remember that we did see it. So he nearly like turns them into ground beef with this thing, but Quaid manages to rupture its fuel line or something. And in the scene, he obtains a giant drill. Yeah, it was like laying in the corner or something. It's a like it's basically like a large handheld power drill that you have at your house for like tapping screw holes or whatever. It's just a big version of that. And he taps a screw hole with it, basically, <laughs> in the side of the drill excavator and in Benny's body. Yes. <laughs> So this scene actually took me a bit by surprise because, like I mentioned, I watched this on TV. As Arnold is doing this, he yells, screw you, Benny, because as he's literally screwing this hole into Benny. (laughs) I thought when I watched that as a kid, I thought that was just like the dubbed censored version of him saying, f*** you, Benny. (laughs) And then when I watched it, and I heard him actually say, screw you, Benny. I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Oh, that's what <laughs> they were actually going for that. I missed it. That's good. After that, they managed to get to the reactor and there's an action set piece and shootout in the reactor. And I didn't talk about this earlier. I'm so sorry. One of the cool little spy gadgets that was in Quaid's little dead drop case is this fun little hologram projector that creates a photorealistic hologram of Quaid that mirrors whatever action he's doing some distance from him. Yeah, I it's kind of funny that it has that like specific limitation. But exactly. It mirrors his actions. And so he uses this in this reactor area with all these columns that people are hiding behind to create a basically funhouse mirror scene trope <laughs> where people are like, oh, is this the real guy? And he deceives them all and shoots them in the back. Yep. So Molina and Quaid use this to trick and kill all the pursuing soldiers. 
So this this is probably my favorite set piece in the movie. Yeah, without question. It is. You also get a good line here. Yes. <laughs> so at the beginning of the sequence, you see like Quaid running around and then all the soldiers start shooting at him and gunning him down. And he's selling this, right? As if he's being shot. But then he just like gets up and starts laughing and they're like, oh, shit, he's got a projector. And he just pops out behind a column and like just like shoots five of them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what sets this up. Right. So what happens next? <laughs> so there's another time where they catch Quaid and oh man, I hope I don't f- up this line. They catch Quaid and he's like, oh no, is it me? The real Quaid? Yes, it is. And then he shoots them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's probably like the one bit in this movie that just like, unambiguously lands completely the way that like so many moments in robocop landed yeah it was good and this is a very fun and dynamic action sequence because it's not just quay doing this right like melina gets to be useful. i mean melina is actually a really cool character like she actually like gets to do things of her own agency throughout the movie and she also gets to make use of the hologram projector like she and quaid in this fight are like tossing it back and forth and she also makes use of it because the soldiers don't realize she now has it it's 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 good it's all good uh, after melina and quaid kill everyone richter flees to like this open platform elevator he and quaid have a fight which ends in richter dangling off of this open platform elevator and quaid standing above him like most elevator fight scenes Somebody gets elevated (laughs) and chopped off or chopped in half or whatever. And it happens here. Yeah, um, there isn't enough clearance between the elevator platform and like the next floor. And Richter's hands get cut off. And it's gross. It's gross. And Quaid holds them up, like shakes them. They're all bloody and floppy. And then he throws them. (laughs) Yeah, he like... Okay, so I didn't talk about this earlier, but right before Cohagen and Richter are about to brainwash uh, Quaid back into Hauser, Cohagen's like, "Hey, Richter, bring Hauser over for a party. Uh, we'll uh, we'll have a good time." And then and then Richter turns around and he says to Quaid in the cha- in the torture chair, "See you at the party." And then <laughs> at the end of this fight scene, as he's holding Richter's severed hands, he just yells after him as he's falling, "See you at the party." <laughs> So this elevator takes Quaid to the reactor. Cohagen confronts Quaid at the reactor, threatens to blow it up with a bomb. Um, at this moment, Melina shows up, shoots Cohagen. Before he dies, Cohagen activates the bomb timer, but Quaid manages to just throw this bomb somewhere. Also, whatever like protective enclosure is protecting them around from the exterior of Mars sucks. It's very fragile. <laughs> Is it made of tissue paper or something? People are afraid to like shoot bullets at the dome for fear of rupturing. But everybody's equipped with guns. <laughs> yes. Considering this is a place that is plagued with insurgent violence and frequent gunfire, maybe not have it be that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I guess it does emphasize uh, Cohagen's like underfunding of everything, but still. Uh, fair enough. Quaid tosses it somewhere. It causes a rupture to the outside. Explosive decompression sucks Cohagen out to the outside, and you watch him suffocate graphically. Yeah, extended sequences, each of these decompression scenes. So you get to watch it for a while. <laughs> yeah, it it's very, very gross. His eyes, like, fully prolapse out of his eye sockets. 
blood just like starts streaming from every orifice in his face. His face is just fully just it's it's so gross. It's basically just to tell you what's in store for Quaid and Melina, because a few minutes later, they also get sucked to the outside. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the reactor is able to populate the planet with oxygen in time and create an atmosphere just barely in time so that that doesn't happen to Quaid and Melina. And the res and so the residents of the Undercity are saved and the residents of Mars all look out on a blue sky to Mars because of this machine being activated. Yay. <laughs> and that's the movie. He never achieved total recall. <laughs> I guess. So, um, overall, didn't like it quite as much as RoboCop, although it is a more seemingly conventional like action movie than RoboCop, perhaps. Yeah, I, I just think it didn't do as good of a job world building as RoboCop. I, I would agree with that. All right, well, then let's jump into our segments here. So I already claimed my most neuro moment, uh, which is where he is able to match his handwriting to his previous personality, I suppose, is handwriting. And that makes sense in some ways, because even though his long-term memory may have been erased, that's a different kind of memory that's discrete. Uh, motor tasks specifically are preserved even in people with anterograde amnesia, and, that, and that's been demonstrated. So this is true. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to steal the same one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yes, it's, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, that is my near O moment as well. It's a... I think it's like the really only call to how this might actually function. <laughs> and so it's it's definitely the best uh, highlight. Now, my near all moment is one that we, we kind of skipped over because I wanted to save it for this moment, which is <laughs> when, he's, when he's getting the consultation at recall, they tell him that if he wants to take a longer vacation, it's going to cost more because they have to do a deeper implant. <laughs> <laughs> And I have no idea what this means or why that's the case. I guess it sounds intuitive or something to say that like more memories are stored deeper in your brain. I don't know what they mean by it. Also, there's no actual physical implant, right? So exactly. What does deeper mean? <laughs> they have okay. to like use more energy to like penetrate deeper into the brain. I don't. Well, then that's our Nero and Near All moments for Total Recall. Ratings. It's our tomatometer. Where do we put this on our tomatometer? <laughs> I'm going to give this one out of three boobs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think this was not as good as Robocop. I shouldn't. It, I felt like the movie was a little bit. It didn't establish a good world that I felt like I wanted to like live in and explore more necessarily. I mean, you want to live in the crime-ridden hellscape of RoboCop's Detroit? It sounds adventurous and intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> this, you just work normal construct like everything is normal about almost the entirety of society besides that there's just like a bit more threat and like nothing that much more intriguing to explore in my mind. So I will rate this as incomplete recall out of total <laughs> recall. Because that's literally the situation. Like you said, he doesn't ever actually get total recall. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I didn't quite like this as much as RoboCop. The sort of 
consciousness, sense of self, conflating that with memory. You know, I, I take issue with that a little bit. And I didn't like it enough to sort of gloss over that the way I would if I really, really liked this movie. Yeah. Which is odd because I thought I was going to really, really like this movie. And I still enjoyed it, but it's maybe not the banger that uh, my the little hamster wheels in my brain thought it was going to be. Yeah. Sometimes movies just get too big. The reputation is too large. I mean, I, I had the same thing, even though I had never seen anything about this and knew nothing about it. I thought it was going to be very good because it was so popular, but I'm pretty sure it was just popular because of the three boob lady <laughs> and Arnold, right? And Arnold, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for joining us for total recall here. I think we'll leave you with a very concise takeaway here from very early on in the movie. Uh, Nick, what would that be? Uh, Don't f*** your brain. Thanks everyone for joining us. Um, Thank you, Nick, for going with me on this journey through the filmography of Paul Verhoeven. (laughs) We're not going to do a third Paul Verhoeven movie in a row. If if the sort of decline in how much we liked them is linear, like (laughs) the next one would probably be like, why are we watching this? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I don't know if I could take another one. So thank you for sparing me that. I am excited for our next episode, though. That's right. So we won't spoil it quite yet because it may not actually be that because I suck at sequencing. But um, if anyone has any questions, um, please feel free to send an email to narrativespodcast at gmail.com and E-U-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next episode. Come on. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>